So before we jump into our passage this morning, which is Romans 11, let's talk to our young ones here. Young ones, if I could have your attention, I want to tell you what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. So uh, it's May, right? It's May. Uh, it's, who's ready for summer? Young ones. <clears throat> I think that's all the hands. Uh, it, it's, it's summer, so it, it basically means it's almost Christmas. <clears throat> um, who here knows how many days till Christmas? It's actually not that many. Only 232 days. And then it's Christmas. So here we go. Uh, let's talk Christmas. Do y'all remember, have y'all ever seen, it's an old, old movie. It's like claymation kind of thing, animation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Do y'all remember that one? Have y'all seen that one? Do you remember Rudolph? Do you remember, you know, the, the reindeer with the red nose that nobody liked because uh, he's got a red nose uh, that lights up really shiny. Do you remember the Island of Misfit Toys? You remember that? This is kind of like, if you haven't seen Rudolph, go, go watch Rudolph. It's almost Christmas. Uh, but like this Island of Misfit Toys, these are toys that nobody wants because <clears throat> they're a little different. So there's Charlie in the Box. Uh, who, you know, what's a, you know, there's not a, a, it's not Jack in the Box, it's Charlie in the Box. There's uh, a spotted elephant. There's a water pistol that shoots jelly. There's a train that has square wheels, not round wheels. There's a bird that doesn't fly, it swims. There's a cowboy that rides an ostrich. Uh, the, there's a boat that doesn't float. So these are misfit toys. Like, nobody wants these toys, so these toys are stuck on this island. Uh, they don't belong. They don't belong anywhere. And those misfit, misfit toys, they, st they would stay on that island forever un until, unless, who came and saved them? Do you remember who's the savior of Rudolph? It's Rudolph. <laughs> so Rudolph comes and saves all these mis misfit toys. Rudolph, who's like a misfit outcast himself, he comes and he saves these other misfits. misfits. Okay, this is what Paul is going to talk about today in this passage. He's going to talk about people who belong to Jesus and belong to the church. And here's what I want to say to you young ones. This is like this is serious stuff. You may feel sometimes, you may feel like you don't belong. Like you may feel like maybe you don't belong at school or maybe you don't belong. Like it, it's that hard thing of there are going to be times in your life where everybody feels like, I don't know if I really, really belong. Uh, and here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is this. You hear that thunder? Like we're getting really serious. The good news of the gospel is this is that Jesus came down. He came down from heaven, and he was rejected by everyone. There's so many people, nobody wanted Jesus. But Jesus knew that was going to happen. He came down from heaven in order to save those who really didn't belong. He came down to save sinners. He came down, he goes to the cross, and, and on that cross, he is really cast out. He is cast out from God himself. And he does that in our place. He takes being, you know, us not belonging, us being thrown out, uh, he takes that in our place on the cross so that we would belong, so that we would belong to Jesus and so that we would belong to each other. And it's this, y'all, it's because of Jesus, just by believing in him, the good news is you really do belong. You belong to Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus, we belong to one another. And the church is going to be this thing throughout our lives where people will look at the church and say, y'all don't belong. And they're kind of right. Like the church doesn't belong to this world. Where do we belong? We belong in heaven with Jesus. And that is where we are going. But when we believe this, like when we know this, you need to know you're really not a misfit toy. 
You're really not this thing that doesn't belong. You do. You belong in the most awesome, important, glorious way ever. You belong to God, and He loves you. And that really does change. That changes the way we look at ourselves. And that changes the way we look at other people here in the church. Like, everyone belongs here uh, who wants Jesus. Everybody. And that changes the way we also look at people out in the world, other misfits who don't have Jesus. We look at them, and what do we want for them? Young ones, we want them to belong. We want them to have Jesus, and we want them to belong to heaven too. And that is why we always hold out Jesus to each other and to the world, to anybody that wants him. This is what Paul is going to tell us today. We're we're in uh, Romans chapter 11, and this is coming on the heels of (laughs) chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Like he, He spends eight chapters... Uh, uh, talking about revealing, exposing the glories of the gospel uh, and how it's all been accomplished, our salvation. All you have to do is you just got to believe it and and you've got it. And then he knows he's come to this place where he's got to deal with this objection, this very, very big objection that, that comes in the form of, okay, like you're talking about belonging. Okay, but what about Israel? Israel used to be God's favored people. But now you're saying he's, Israel is no longer God's favored people. So did God fail in his promises to Israel? That's such a big question. Paul has spent three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, answering it. To say that God's promises have not failed. This is his like thesis right there at the beginning of chapter 9. God's promises have not failed because not all Israel is really Israel. True Israel... Paul has defined is God's elect. So we've been dealing with this stuff of election, which comes with all of its own questions and objections. But it's this thing that God from before the foundations of the earth chose. He chose those whom he desires for salvation. He's already chosen them. And he has done so not on the basis of anything in any person, but for reasons in himself. And so God's promises to his elect Paul is saying, have not failed. And we come to the end of Paul's explanation today in Romans chapter 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And and these are selections from chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So I ask, did they stumble? This is Israel. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, 
but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So a uh, little historical context here. If you remember <clears throat> our first century ancient Near Eastern history, the Roman Emperor Claudius, in AD 49, he expelled all Jews from Rome. He kicked all of them out. And that even included Christian Jews. They all had to go. They were allowed to come back six years later after uh, Claudius' reign came to an end. But during that time, the Roman church, the Roman church had become all Gentile Christians. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans was written uh, uh, a couple years after the Jews were allowed to come back in, into, into Rome. But by that time, the church is majority Gentiles uh, with some Jewish Christian minority. Uh, and now there's infighting. Infighting in the church. And not only that, <clears throat> at this time, Jewish leadership has uh, returned to the community in Rome, and they are also making things difficult for Jewish and Gentile Christians. So, so by the time that Paul writes to the church in Rome, there's this idea that is formed in the church. And the idea is this. God used to favor Israel, and they had their chance, <clears throat> but they forfeited they forfeited that favor and blessing, and now God has chosen to favor the Gentiles. Now it's our turn. So, Paul comes back to the objection again here in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? <clears throat> and this is kind of like a yes and no. Uh, yes. Uh, has God rejected his people, the nation of Israel? Yes. Paul has already explained that God has rejected the nation of Israel, as in God is no longer in covenant with the nation of Israel. So that Mosaic law covenant given at Sinai, that's the old covenant now. The, you know, that, that stuff of the, the kingdom in the land of Canaan, national Israel, the kings, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, that is now done. But that's actually not what Paul is asking here in Romans 11. He's asking a different question now. Paul is now asking, has God rejected his people? That is... Has God rejected all Israelites? Like every single Israelite. Is God done with all Jews? Like they had their chance and now uh, they don't have any chance of God's favor. There's no chance of God's favor, no chance of, uh, of salvation for any Jew. They're totally out of God's kingdom. And Paul's answer is absolutely not. No. And then he points out the most obvious example that God has not rejected all Jews. Paul. Paul himself. Paul says, 
I am an Israelite. I myself am, uh, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul is not one of those Jews that followed Jesus and believed in Jesus when Jesus showed up. Paul was a Pharisee who hated Jesus and he hated all Christians. He hated the church. He persecuted the church. He sent tons of Christians to jail and to worse, their death. Paul is on his way to the borders of Rome to murder more Christians when Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road, Damascus Road and converts him. So no, no way has God rejected all Jews. 3,000 Jews became Christians on the day of Pentecost, right after Jesus' resurrection. Not long after that, a couple more thousand Jews came to faith in Jesus in Jerusalem. There were Jewish Christians uh, in the church in Rome. There were thousands of Jewish Christians across the Roman Empire at this point that Paul is writing this. So up to this point, it's been Jewish, Jewish objections to Paul's teaching on election that Paul's been dealing with. But now Paul directs his objection to the Gentiles in the church. Verse 13 makes it really clear who he's talking to. Uh, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Because the irony is throughout the Old Testament, Jews had been set apart by God from the pagan nations of the Gentiles and given many blessings by God in part to be a light to the surrounding pagan nations. But Israel grew arrogant toward the unbelieving world. Now God has rejected uh, the nation of Israel and is blessing all peoples, Gentiles too, bringing them into his church. And the Gentiles now become arrogant toward the Jews. So Paul warns the Gentiles in the church three times. Verse 18, do not become arrogant. Verse 20, don't become proud. Verse 25, don't be wise in your own eyes. That is arrogant. And those warnings, they come in the form of a metaphor. Paul talks about this olive tree. This is, this is everything to this passage in Romans 11, is getting this olive tree thing. Like, what does the tree represent? you got to get that to get this picture. And here it is. The tree represents all of God's people throughout history, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But that does not mean God's people as in the elect. The tree doesn't represent the elect people of God. It represents the covenant people of God. This is not an election tree. This is a covenant tree. So in the Old Covenant, the covenant community, think Old Testament, the covenant community was the nation of Israel. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the covenant community is the church family. So one, the old one, was a theocratic geopolitical entity. The other, the new one, is a family. Okay, But there is a continuity between the two stages here between the stage of Israel and the church. There's a continuity. It's this. The continuity of the covenant community as an institution. Is the olive tree represents the covenant institution of God, not the election. In the tree metaphor, the natural branches, those are the Jews. Those are the Israelites. The unnatural wild olive shoots, those are the Gentiles. It says that natural branches are broken off of the covenant tree 
the natural branches being broken off. That's a picture of Israelites who do not believe in the Old Testament gospel promise of a savior. So, so they're broken off the covenant community because they are not part of the new covenant community of the church. Okay? Natural branches that have been broken off and now grafted back into the covenant community of the church, that would be like an unbelieving Jew, like Paul, who came to profess faith in the gospel of Jesus and was brought back into the covenant community of the church. Unnatural, wild branches grafted into the new covenant community of the church, those are the Gentiles. Those are the Gentiles who profess faith in Jesus and they come into God's covenant people community. Unnatural wild branches grafted into the church and then broken off, those are the Gentiles who professed faith in Jesus, they got baptized, they joined the church, and then they come to reject their profession of faith in Jesus. They, they come to reject their profession of faith in the gospel, exposing that they never really believed this in the first place. And they are broken off the covenant community. Okay, so those are all the branches. And that just leaves the root. Verse 16, what's the root? It's really tempting to run to Jesus. Because he's the, he's the best answer to all the best questions. But um, remember that the whole discussion here, it started back in chapter 9 with talk about Abraham and his descendants, and who are the true heirs of God's promise. The holy root that the covenant community of Jews and Gentiles have in common is Abraham. It's Abraham. Paul says that since that root is holy, then the rest of the tree deriving from that root is holy. But this is also really important. Remember, this is not an election tree. That holiness is, he's not talking about inward spiritual holiness, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in the elect, not an election tree. It can't be that holiness. It can't be because that holiness that Paul is talking about here, it's even shared for a time with those branches that are eventually broken off the tree. Okay? It can't be, it can't be election holiness because uh, elect people don't get broken off the tree um, if it were an election tree. But the holiness that Paul is talking about is institutional holiness. The holiness that the tree, root and branches all share together is this, it's this formal status holiness of belonging to the covenant institution. It's this holiness of you belong to the church. You belong to the covenant community. <clears throat> and what that means, what that means is you can be in the institution of the church. And you can be holy in that sense of covenant membership. <clears throat> and there are big, great benefits that come with being a member of the church. Like you want to be in the church because the church is where you get Jesus. You get all the privileges and all the rights of being a member of the church. You know, the church is now responsible. If you take those membership vows, if you join the church, the church is now responsible for your care, spiritual care, physical care if needed. So you get to hear and be a part of the ministry of God's gospel. But you can be in the institution of the church and not get the gospel. You, you can be in the covenant institution of the church and not get Jesus because Jesus is not what you really, really want. You can be in the right institution and still not believe. This is Paul's warning to arrogant Gentile members in the church. Just because you show up to church, you can't, like, that doesn't mean you're necessarily saved. 
just because you've been gathered to the church doesn't necessarily mean you've been gathered to Jesus. And again, this is a covenant tree, so he's not saying Christians could lose their salvation. Don't, don't, you know, don't freak out here. He's not saying Christians could lose their salvation. True Christians will always persevere. But if Jesus is not your Savior, church membership will not save you. Uh, again, covenant tree. But just like there uh, were unbelievers in the Old Covenant in Israel, so there are unbelievers in the New Covenant church. That thing of not all Israel is Israel, that can be said of the church too. And so, the church as an institution, it cannot be defined simply in terms of we're, this is the elect. This is the, all the true believers. What you have to think of, you have to think of a big circle. The visible church around the world, that's the, that's the covenant people. And then within that, there is a smaller circle of true believers, the elect. Now this raises another common objection to election. The people will say, you know, this election stuff, man, that produces pride. Like you tell people God chooses them over others, that's going to make those people rotten narcissists. Like, the, like these arrogant Gentiles that Paul is warning here. Okay, that is a fair objection. Uh, but the real problem is not getting, not actually understanding election. Election is not the problem. It's not understanding election. And that's the problem these Gentiles have. That's what leads to their arrogance and pride. They don't get it. There's a story from um, uh, old seminary days with uh, an old uh, pastor, theologian, seminarian, uh, seminary professor, R.C. Sproul. Uh, while he's teaching on election one day, a student stands up and she says, I just cannot believe this election stuff. It's not fair. Why can't God just choose everyone? I don't buy it. I believe in free will. And R.C. Sproul, uh, he said, I, I understand your objection. This is really hard stuff to believe. But there are bigger problems if you don't accept this. And he asks the student, why are you a Christian and your roommate isn't? And she replied, well, because I accepted Christ and my roommate didn't. And the professor said, yes, great. Now, why did you accept Christ and your roommate didn't? And she replied, well, because I repented of my sins and my roommate wouldn't. And Sproul said, yes, great. Now, why did you repent of your sins and your roommate wouldn't? And the student replied, well, because I was willing to admit I was a sinner and my roommate wasn't. And he said, yes, great. Now, why were you willing to admit you were a sinner and your roommate wasn't? And on and on and on and on they went until they got to the point of, listen, if you believe that the only difference between you and your roommate is actually God's grace and God's choosing, that, that God is the one who chose to set his love and grace on you, if that is the only difference then you don't have any basis on which to look down or hate your roommate. If, if, then you have no grounds to feel superior to anyone. But if you believe the difference between you and your roommate was that you were a little bit better, a little bit smarter, a little bit more humble, maybe a little bit more wiser, a little bit more spiritual, if you believe the difference is located not in God, but is located in you, uh, then now you have grounds for which to look down on other people and hate other people. 
And that said, let's hear, admit that we actually do struggle with this arrogance. Because we struggle with grace. Just take a moment here. Have you ever gotten mad at someone? Have you ever gotten mad at someone for not believing in Jesus? I have. Once. Today. <laughs> like already once today. Like, yes, all the time. And but, but what are we exposing about ourselves when we get mad at people who don't believe in Jesus? Here, here are two verses that I mistakenly left out. Uh, I wanted to include them, can't include the whole chapter, but verses five and six, Paul says this. In this chapter, at the, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It is easy to give lip service to this thing, of, to this grace, and, and we don't realize that when we get angry with unbelievers, we are struggling with this idea because there's this idea in each of us. It's like, it's really me. Like, I guess I'm a more open person. I guess I'm more humble. I guess I'm more teachable. I guess maybe I'm just more of a deep thinker. Like, when we get angry with non-Christians, it's this thing inside of us of like, why can't you be more thoughtful? Oh, the cleverness of me. It, 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 and so that's, that's arrogance and that's pride. And Paul is telling us, yeah, don't, don't go there. It's not, it's not you. It's God. You don't have to be a, a farmer or a gardener, arborist, tree specialist, to see, to see the picture that Paul is painting with this olive tree metaphor. You, you, don't have to know, you, you don't even have to know that Israel was called an olive tree in the Old Testament to get it. But this helps right here. Up until about 100 years ago, New Testament commentators, they either scratched their heads or, uh, or, or they just you know, kind of railed at Paul because they didn't, they didn't get the olive tree metaphor. Uh, they, they took Paul as like a city slicker you know, uh, because they understood ancient Near, Eastern, ancient Near Eastern agriculture and Paul obviously didn't because commentators have said, Ancient near, can't say that. Ancient near Eastern farmers, they didn't graft weak uh, and wild olive shoots into a strong, healthy olive tree. If they did any of this grafting, they grafted a strong branch into a weak tree to jumpstart new growth. Uh, so, so they've got all kinds of problems here with Paul. But then a New Testament scholar named William Ramsey. Who, who actually went into New Testament studies in order to disprove Christianity and then became a Christian in his studies. Uh, this, this New Testament scholar, archaeologist, he came across the writings of a contemporary of Paul's named, uh, this guy named uh, Columella, uh, who wrote about this, uh, he wrote about farming and country life. He wrote about the rustic life uh, in his day, in the book De Re Rustica. And he said, he said the stuff that Paul is describing. He said that that happened in his day. The practice was when a gardener had a healthy tree with a healthy root system, but for some reason the tree was just underproducing. It's just not giving out the fruit it's supposed to. That gardener would take wild olive shoots that technically were not supposed to be there, and the tree grafts them in, and that jump starts the tree. The tree starts to bear fruit more and more. And, 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 and that's the picture of you're grafting in these Gentiles who are not supposed to be there, and that is supposed to jumpstart the growth of the covenant community that's not producing fruit anymore. You know, Israel is no longer producing fruit. That's why God rejects them. 
And yet, so that's, that's an awesome part of the picture right there, but yet there's still this other part of the metaphor that scholars pointed out uh, that, that no one, not even Columella, that he wouldn't affirm this either. Uh, it's this thing of, listen, natural branches that are cut off and thrown away, you don't graft those back on later because they're dead. Like, branches broken off and thrown off to the side, you can't come back years later, but those things are dead, they're dried up, they're good for nothing but burning. And, and, and I love this. Another pastor pointed this out and said, yeah, uh, you want, like every metaphor breaks down at some point. Okay, but, but what if somebody went up to Paul and, and can, you, can you imagine pointing this out and saying, you know, Paul, it doesn't work. Can you imagine like Paul sitting there listening to it and then kind of smiling and nodding? Smiling and nodding in, as if to say, yeah, grafting on dead branches, that would take a miracle. And that's what he says here in verse 23. And even Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And the power, that miracle, it is the cross. In verse 11, Paul asks, did all Israel stumble in order that all Israel would fall? Like, did the nation of Israel fall that every single Jew might fall? And he says, no, rather, he says, through their trespass, salvation has come to Gentiles. And their trespass that he's talking about there, it is the crucifixion of Jesus. In the unsearchable wisdom of God, Israel's ult- the nation of Israel's ultimate act of satanic rebellion against the Lord was denying and repudiating their Messiah, Jesus and delivering him up to death on the cross. And in God's unsearchable wisdom, that became the occasion for the accomplishing of salvation and the gospel going out to the world, even to the Gentiles. But then Paul adds that in God's unsearchable wisdom, including Gentiles, would undoubtedly, inevitably, make some Jews jealous. Seeing their God now, going after non-Jews and seeing this new relationship to God, exposing the reality that his relationship to God through the law was unable to save them, it would ignite this jealousy, this desire to have with God what these Gentiles have with God. That the cross and the salvation of Gentiles would have the effect of drawing Jews who did not believe in Jesus to Jesus in faith. That the grace of the new covenant would draw Jews to Jesus in faith. So here is Paul, and he's correcting the arrogance of the Gentiles. Because this is this thing, they think they are now the apex of history. But here's the history lesson that even the olive tree metaphor captures. And and really, in 30 seconds, this this might really, really help. Like how you understand Old Testament and New Testament, where we're going right now. Uh, God gave the, you know, Abraham's the root. God gave the promises of the kingdom to Abraham. And those kingdom promises, they are fulfilled in Israel. Abraham got kings. He got David in the line, in the line of David. Abraham got a land. He got the land of Canaan. And he got a, you know, a people as numerous as the stars. He got the people of Israel, the 12 tribes. But that kingdom of Israel, it's just the first stage fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Just the first stage. It's a symbol. Israel is a symbol pointing to the real fulfillment, which is the new covenant kingdom. When we get the real king, Jesus, a better David, 
And we get the real land, not Canaan. We get heaven. And, and, and we get the new covenant people of God. We get the church. Uh, they're looking at uh, w- one difference there we could point out. It's really cool. This could, we could go off from this. You know, yeah, okay, King David and the land of Canaan, those were, those were prototypes. Those were pictures pointing forward to the real ultimate thing. But when it comes to God saving a people, he's always been saving a people. In the old and now in the new. Uh, in the old covenant, now in the new covenant. God has always been saving a people. And now, now for us here Y'all, even this new covenant stage, it's two stages. You know this. Like, think of it. We, we know that this new covenant stage, we, we've not reached the apex of history. Not yet. We're in the first stage, but we're looking forward to that ultimate fulfillment of God's promises when we have the land of the new heavens and new earth. When we have our King Jesus with us and we have all the elect of God who have been saved. The apex of history is when every Jew and every Gentile of God's elect is redeemed. Then all true Israel is saved. And God's promises have not failed. One temptation, just in with this, one temptation in the church today is that we want, um, we kind of want this separation, you know, true believers from false professor, you know, professors of the faith. And the temptation in that desire is we start adding to the gospel in order to make this separation. You know, it's tempting to add qualifiers of, you, you know, you got to do this, and you got to make sure you're doing this, and you're not this kind of person, and that this isn't your struggle. It's, it's easy for, you know, pastors to start pounding on the pulpit and when he sees sin in the church, and it's, you know, it seems like it's threatening. And it's because in the church, we think like we can separate true believers from false believers. And what the church ends up doing is pushing people in unhealthy ways to over-examine themselves, and we stop preaching free grace. And if you stop preaching free grace, you start filling true believers with all kinds of despair. And you start to worry like, okay, wait, wait, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not spiritual enough? What if I'm not advanced enough in my theology, doing enough good in the world? And another pastor once told me, uh, he, he told me that he grew up in a church that only preached the law because the pastor of the church said, told him if he preached grace, then people would go off living licentious lives. And this pastor remembers when he was younger, he remembers coming out, this is before he was a pastor, he remembers his family coming out of worship on Sundays so dejected, so beaten down. When you turn a sermon into a warning, you better, you better really believe this, you better be good. You start pushing people away from their Lord and Savior. You steal their hope. You steal their assurance. You, you make them aware, are they good enough for Jesus? None of us are good enough for Jesus. That's grace. Martin Luther, in with this, Martin Luther once asked, he was once asked, somebody said, don't you worry about all the goats, that is the unbelievers in your church, when you just preach free grace and justification by faith alone? And Luther said, no, I preach to the sheep. I preach to God's people. The law wouldn't change the goats anyways. If the gospel doesn't change them, nothing will. Why would I ever stop preaching the gospel of grace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace, which is the power unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Lord, we thank you that we have been saved by your grace. 
Help us to hold on to it, the grace we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us. Thank you for Jesus' accomplishment. And we pray that in your awesome mercy, you would continue to work out that salvation here in every single person. And Lord, that you would bless us to take that gospel out into our families, our neighborhoods, Lord, this city, across the world that others might believe too. There is no other gospel. There is no other salvation. And we give you praise for it. In Christ's name, amen.